The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. It is Friday. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Uh-huh, but your work may not be done, Sebastian. May We may all be convening again on Sunday. Oh. What else could today's special be about other than Brexit? Did you know we only have... 13 working days until the transition period ends, Britain leaves the EU. Have we used that time well? Yeah, I mean, the question really is, when is the real deadline? We see uh, date after date getting pushed back. Is the 31st the only real time when this is the crunch time that we've talked about for so long. So negotiations continue at the moment until Sunday. Officials conceding that there's little to discuss, though, without fresh political direction. Are they just twiddling their thumbs? Earlier on, we heard from the deputy, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister David Liddington. He told Bloomberg that even if Sunday isn't a hard deadline, the two sides are running out of road for negotiating time. I mean, the fact they've both said Sunday sort of elevates the significance of that date. Um, it could go on a bit longer but ultimately you, you you run out of time for both sides to go through the necessary approvals process to turn an agreement into something that has legal effect so that was david liddington there who's on bloomberg radio and television uh, earlier this morning the european commission president of course ursula von der Leyen, has told eu leaders that no deal is the most likely outcome now that echoes boris johnson's warning that it's a strong possibility which makes the front page of most of today's newspapers too and so on all of this let's bring in our guest nicholas wright senior teaching fellow in eu politics at ucl good to have you on the program nicholas what Thank you would very much for the invitation mm. what would then in your view fresh political impetus a fresh political direction actually look like at this stage i think realistically at this point um given the red lines on both sides i think first of all it's quite hard to see where that fresh political impetus is likely to come from but really it comes back to this uh, question of sovereignty and how the johnson government has interpreted it um, and here we're thinking about, you know, I'm sure you've talked about these endlessly questions around the governance of any agreement, around level playing field, around environmental and workers' rights, etc. The EU isn't going to compromise on these because these are fundamental to 
it's the integrity of the single market. And that's been clear since going right back to 2017. Mm. Um, and from the EU perspective, any compromise made here on those risks uh, setting all sorts of dangerous precedents for the future. It also risks um, harming the capacity of their companies to be able to to compete effectively with a powerful economy in the EU, in the UK, which is you know just 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 off the border now. Um, so it really comes back to the appetite of of the Johnson government to, to make any kind of compromise on this and to recognise that you know the, the notion of sovereignty is not so much about saying we will take on no obligations related to the European Union, but it's recognising where certain obligations will actually facilitate a good economic relationship, and that's kind of where we are now. Is there a middle ground there where there is some sort of compromise the UK can make where it can still spin it to those hardcore Brexiteers that the sovereignty that they campaign for is going to stay intact? I think so, because the very fact that we are being presented with a choice highlights the fact that we are a sovereign actor, as we have been all the way down the line. We are making sovereign choices all the time in terms of the relationships we want to build. For example, look at the free trade agreement we recently um, signed with Japan. And I think the key thing to remember here is what we're arguing about. It's essentially a hypothetical situation in the future where the UK may have diverged significantly enough from the sort of agreed standards and principles that the EU would feel it would have to act. We're not arguing about something that is definitely going to happen. So yeah. At the moment, we seem to be in a situation where the choices between accepting definite economic pain on the 1st of January by having no deal or saying, look, we don't even know if this is going to happen. It's perfectly normal to accept international obligations with partners. Let's see where we are. And let's be clear, those obligations cut cut both ways. It's not simply the UK that's, uh, that's making commitments. The EU has to make commitments as well. So I think we've got hung up on a very narrow definition of sovereignty mm. around, a, a, around a hypothetical problem. Uh, yeah. Whereas actually the sort of pragmatic way forward is to say, look, we are a sovereign actor. We can make this decision ourselves. And we choose to make these, to agree to these obligations because it is in the best interest of the country. And that's your, that, that for me would be a very powerful message for the Prime Minister to send if he were, to, if he were so minded. Yeah, of course. And I, I mean, not to be cynical, but this is where deeply complex trade issues, um, you know, hit with the, the kind of broad understanding of voters out there, isn't it? Um, yeah. What would, um, would, do you think that the UK, though, at this point is going to extend talks? Again, we've talked about deadlines and deadlines. Uh, I mean, Liddington this morning was saying, look, the 31st is absolutely a dead, deadline. He was the Deputy Prime Minister um, to Theresa May. So, you know, he should know uh, the legalities of it. But is there um, is there any extension? I mean, David, I mean, David Diddington's basically spot on with us. I mean, there is, there's the possibility that they might try and finesse something post uh, 31st of December, whereby they have some kind of very, very loose framework agreement that will allow some kind of continuity while the talks continue. But I'm not sure there's much appetite for that on either side, because unless, you know, that would make sense if there had been a significant political shift by the UK and or the EU, but I don't see that happening. So essentially, you would be extending talks just for the sake of having more talks. And I think the likelihood is that both sides will, you know, as we've seen, are now in a pathway to accepting that no deal is going to be the outcome. I I think it's very difficult, to be honest, to see how the, the, the Prime Minister at the moment is going to be able to row back, given the, if you like, the political rhetoric um, that has been um, 
that he's been using in, in, in recent months. Yeah. So I think we end up in a situation with no no deal on the 30, 31st of December, a, a pause potentially, but hopefully not acrimonious. And then at some point further down the line, we have to get back to the negotiation the, the negotiation table. This isn't 31st of December isn't the end of the relationship. It's simply a, a shift to a new dynamic in how that relationship will work. And, and meantime, Nicholas, you start to see the disruption building up. We're already getting it at the ports. You're getting backlogs. You've got the likes of Honda stopping production because they can't get the parts they need. How much worse do you see that getting? This critical, of course, because it's the sort of thing you can see very clearly, you can measure. And it's the sort of thing I feel would cut through and be noticed by the public as an early consequence of a no-deal Brexit or, or maybe even with some sort of slim deal. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the important point to be to be clear about is even in the, if there is a deal, there's there's already there's going to be significant economic change and disruption in any case. Um, no deal simply makes it makes it potentially much worse. You have these uh, six month kind of um, uh, short term fixes being put in place and mitigations being put in place on the EU side relating to aviation and air safety and road road haulage. But those are very much just short term. Um, and I think we start to see, you know, just like ports being mm. clogged up, it's becoming difficult to get certain certain supplies coming through, difficult to export potential price rises and i think when people start to realize that they're having to pay a lot more for the same things and you know for certain certain goods or you know they're not being able to access other things they're not being able to book any flights with any certainty for example to go on holiday or the insurance costs go up that's those are sort of things that for, i think for the vast majority of people that's where it starts to cut through when it affects their day-to-day -day life i mean most people i imagine aren't particularly, you know, following or, or interested in the minutiae of trade talks, and fair enough, but this will have a kind of a, a real-world effect. And I think at that point, it becomes very problematic for the government, particularly on top of COVID. It starts to look like, you know, an, an unnecessary political mm. failure on top of everything else. And mm. that that's that's when that's when things become problematic, I think, particularly for the Prime Minister. And I think um, that would say, I find it hard to imagine... Boris Johnson being able to go back in six months' time after a no-deal scenario to try and restart the negotiations. I'm just not sure he'd be able to do that uh, as Prime Minister. No, and I think that's interesting. I, I put um, one Tory MP on the spot a couple of days ago about this and said, is Boris Johnson going to be Prime Minister in 12 months' time? I had to think about mm -hmm. that for a minute. But look, Europe, um, you know, we know it did for the careers of Thatcher. I mean, at the end, John Major, David Cameron, Theresa May, the issue of Europe... Do you think that Boris Johnson is going to be Prime Minister in a year's time? Hmm. Um, I think if things carry on the way they are, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to maintain his support in the party and in the country. They will look at him and they will, they, you know, he will start to look like a very unsafe pair of hands, given the way, you know, certain aspects of COVID have been, have been managed and the big economic hit that's coming not just with Brexit, uh, but with, uh, with, with COVID as well. And I think that's... It, it, you know, the, 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 the stars are not lining up in a particularly favourable way for him at the moment. So he, you know, in that sense, politically, he actually really does need a deal over the longer term. He needs to be able to show, look what I've done. I've brought this deal back. We've got, we've got our sovereignty back. We've got all these great things. Um, you know, however thin the trade deal ultimately is. And if he doesn't do that, then, you know, this is the prime, prime minister who said, you know, it was a million to one shot that, we, that we'd have no deal. So, you know, he's, he's going to have political problems further down the line. Quite significant yeah. ones, I think. Uh, very briefly, Nicholas, I'm fascinated by that, given he's sat on an 80-seat majority. What's the mechanism for that? Is that a leadership challenge we're talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, presumably it would be. I mean, I imagine, you know, I, I'm not sure what the proportion of letters is that the uh, chairman of the 1922 committee needs to receive, but, you know, conceivably it would be. And I think particularly in the new constituencies, the, you know, the so-called red wall seats, you know, the people who, you know, lent their votes to the Conservatives for the first time, if they start to feel that economically and yeah. financially they're a lot worse off, you know, there's no reason to imagine that their loyalty will be will, will be retained. You start to get angry phone calls and letters to constituency constituency it's officers, and then MPs are going, "Well, hang on a minute, what, what's going on here? Maybe Johnson isn't. You know, he won us the election, but maybe he's not the future." Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude, and it's the work passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Now, Boris Johnson's pleas for EU leaders to step in and salvage faltering Brexit trade talks were frustrated last night. We had the European summit overrunning decisions made about fiscal stimulus, about climate commitments. That's all dominating the agenda. In the end, the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen spending just 10 minutes briefing the leaders on Brexit. Uh, so really not seemingly a priority for them as they had plenty else to get through. Joining us now to discuss uh, particularly the Brexit angle to all of this is Billy Kelleher. He's an Irish MEP. Uh, Billy, good to have you with us. Uh, I mean, given the, the lack of time spent discussing Brexit this morning, I know it was a long night, uh, but is Brussels in danger of sending out the message that it's not giving this enough attention? Well, it's been giving attention for a number of years now. I mean, since the vote has taken place in the UK around Brexit and the decision to leave, I mean, there has been endless discussions. And, you know, I mean, uh, Prime Minister Johnson met with Ursula von der Leyen the other night. They had uh, dinner together. Uh, there was very much to report from that. And I think that, you know, the, the, the idea that we sh uh, Ursula von der Leyen would go into a summit and to try and talk up know, potential opportunities and talks when they are very much uh, deadlocked at the moment would be the wrong message to give out to. So I think she was just giving mm -hmm. a factual uh, outlining of where we are and the fact of the matter is, you know, we're in a very difficult um, number of days ahead of us until Sunday deadline to try and salvage these talks. So, I mean, we do, do need political creativity. I mean, the technical aspects of, of the trade agreement have been discussed endlessly. There's loads of papers there, so there's no shortage of technical documents what we need now is, is political engagement at the most senior level uh, through the uh, Prime Minister of the U United Kingdom and the European uh, Commission to try and, and move these particular issues forward. But bear in mind, they are fundamental principles. They are issues that are at stake in terms of the integrity of the single market and uh, the UK obviously having its own concerns about governance, about uh, being tied to... Um, conditions uh, that will obligate access to the single market. So there's mm. clear issues. And then you have the emotional issue around fishing as well, which is very much uh, an emotive issue uh, in the UK.
Okay, the Irish Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue um, saying that there is still trust on both sides, that a deal can be done. However, that difficulties, the the difficulties cannot be underestimated. I mean, this is the same sort of uh, discussion really that we've had for days, if not months. Should talks be extended beyond the 31st of December if necessary? Well, I always believe that if there is an opportunity to do a deal, well, of course, you should extend talks. Um, I mean, look, a deal is better for everybody. I mean, I know the UK sometimes say that a, or a crash out would be better than a bad deal. But look, let's be very clear. Uh, no deal would have catastrophic consequences for the, the UK economy, the Northern Ireland economy, uh, for relations between the UK and the European Union. So, you know, at the end of the day, you'd like to believe that if there is an opportunity to grab a deal, that you would give flexibility in terms of, of time. But bear in mind, we've been discussing this issue for uh, over three years, you know, since and since the European Parliament ratified the withdrawal agreement on the end of January of this year, there has mm. been intensive discussions around the technical aspects, and we still come back to fishing, uh, the level playing field, and governance. And those three issues uh, are still the main uh, stumbling blocks. But they are very big stumbling blocks, bearing in mind the European Union is adamant that there has to be a level playing field. In other words, the UK can't diverge from standards and still have access to the European market. They can't um, fund and subvent their industry to undercut the, the European products in the European market. And that is an essential prerequisite, I think, uh, to address before there can be movement on the other issues. Yeah, and I suppose that raises the question that both sides are grappling with, which is we need a deal. But at what cost? The other argument uh, I was interested to read in The Times today, uh, James Forsyth, very well connected within Westminster, writing about uh, how he thinks the EU has misread Boris Johnson uh, and thinks that the optimism comes from the belief that he will climb down at the last minute. Forsyth argues that that may not be the case. Is there a danger here that Brussels has got this wrong uh, and that Boris Johnson simply won't blink and we'll get a no-deal as a result? Yeah, I, I think we have to look at the fact that, you know, the small dog in this fight is the UK. The big dog in this fight is the European Union. You know, if there is to be a crash out, uh, the implications for Europe won't be good. But they will be very, very bad for the United Kingdom as, a, as, as an entity in terms of its economy. And bearing in mind, once we, if we have a trade deal uh, you know, discussion for the next number of months, thereafter we have to have a financial services discussion as well. So there's a huge uh, amount of work still to be done, regardless of whether there is a trade deal this week, next week or next year. Beyond that, there are other major issues which are critically important for the UK in terms of access to the European Union, financial services uh, and, and equivalents. So I, I don't think the European Union is engaged in any political issues here, uh, trying to give the UK uh, you know, a bloody nose because it left the, the, the club. They are just simply looking at the simple fact that you cannot allow uh, an economy the size of the UK with the proximity to the European Union unfettered access to a market without they having some obligations in terms of standards and level playing field. And, and, and that is the critical issue. So, I mean, are German, is Germany going to allow access to the European market for British industry, in, we'll say cars, where the UK could subvent or undercut or fund the car industry to make it more competitive in the European Union. So I just think that, you know, we have to accept that the European Union is rules-based, it operates on that, and they have to mm. insist on these rules being enforced. And the UK yeah. will be the biggest loser if there is a crash out. This is a simple fact of, of basic economics. 
Okay. Um, is it tenable, though, that Northern Ireland should, as the Cabinet Office uh, Minister Michael Gove put it, um, have the best of both worlds, access to both the UK and the EU markets? Well, look, I mean, I, I would be delighted if that would be the case. I mean, the, the Northern Ireland economy, you know, doesn't function in the real world in terms of the fact that there's a huge subvention every year from Westminster uh, to Northern Ireland uh, to, to allow it to function. It is a subsidised economy. Uh, it does need support from Westminster and it does need access to the European Union uh, unfettered as well. So, I mean, anything that would uh, improve the standards of living and access both to the UK economy and to the European Union uh, economy through the Republic of Ireland you know, I think would be of great benefit to Northern Ireland. So I would be in favour of anything that would be of benefit to Northern Ireland in terms of trying to assist this economy, bearing in mind if there is a crash out, um, you know, and if mm. the UK economy shrinks again, will Northern Ireland be the one that will be hit most because it depends on uh, Westminster for a large transfer of money every year, which may not be forthcoming if the UK economy continues to, to contract? Yeah, I want to ask you more about that impact because, I mean, we we're having a conversation a moment ago with uh, a professor from UCL talking about how we're already seeing that disruption at the at the British border down in Kent, uh, or the English border, rather. What sort of disruption do you see on the EU side? Because it has to be there. I mean, it already is by nature of being on the other side of that, that trade route. Uh, there is going to be some impact here, both in, in France and, and throughout the wider continent and also in, in Ireland. Yes, I mean, I mean, Ireland has a difficult position to be in geographically because, I mean, if there is a no-deal um, Brexit, in other words, a crash out, if there is huge difficulties on the Dover-Calais crossing, uh, you know, 700 trucks a day from Ireland cross, uh, you know, uh, in ferries to the uh, UK, many of them continue on to Dover and into Calais. So, I mean, at the moment, we have ferry companies in Ireland who are increasing their capacity so that you'll have direct routes from Ireland uh, direct to the continent without uh, using the South of England land bridge. But, I mean, if there's a crash out, you will have inspections. Uh, I mean, the number of trucks that use that crossing every day is in the thousands. And if you only delay it and uh, trucks by one or two minutes for inspection purposes or for paperwork, well, then you will have huge tailbacks uh, in, in, in Kent and elsewhere. And also on the French side, when uh, trucks are coming from, from Europe to the UK, and be they going on an onward journey to Ireland or into the UK itself, it, it makes no difference. It still would be a logistical nightmare. So, I mean, there are the practical implications. I mean, and people must accept that, you know, a no-deal Brexit benefits nobody. Uh, mm -hmm. other than those that are completely ideologically attached to this concept of, um, uh, you know, the U United Kingdom being able to go it alone. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in a global economy, going it alone is not exactly the place to be. Uh, when you look at all the others that are trying to do trade deals with each other, the UK uh, would be very much isolated. So in terms of the practicalities mm -hmm. and the logistics, it would be hugely difficult for the movement of goods uh, between the UK and the European Union, and that would impact on Ireland as well, obviously, and the Northern Ireland economy in particular. Mm. But beyond that, longer term, it yeah. would have a catastrophic effect on the broader UK economy. And equally, yeah. it would damage the European Union as well. Yes, indeed. Look, I want to ask, um, you know, one of the other sensitive questions, obviously, around the integrity of um, the UK and Northern Ireland. As part of the Good Friday Agreement, explicit provision was given for a referendum on Irish reunification. What would prompt um, that? Uh, what do you think might prompt the border poll that is part of UK law 
what might prompt that happening? Do you see conditions for this border poll, you know, uh, a referendum, as it were, being met within, let's say, the next 12 months after Brexit? Do you think it would be that serious? Well, it would be very serious, but I don't think that it would happen within 12 months. I mean, there is a demographic shift happening in Northern mm. Ireland. Um, you know, there is no doubt about that. There is also a middle ground developing in Northern Ireland between, uh, you know, those that are uh, loyal to the union and those who want to see a united Ireland as quickly as possible. There is a middle ground there as well that probably is expanding. So if you look at the political makeup of Northern Ireland, uh, certainly the unionist dominant majority is, is diminishing quite rapidly, being truthful, both in political terms and in demographics as well. So uh, that particular debate is happening about a united Ireland. What type mm. of united Ireland would it be? Would it be a, fe- a federal state? Would it be, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, would you have different parliamentary structures? But those debates are happening in, ter- in communities and households across Ireland and Brexit, and in the event of there being a very hard Brexit, uh, you know, it will yeah. certainly speed up that discussion. Bear in mind, you know, the, the Brexit issue already sp- sp- speeded up the discussion around the United Ireland because many people in Northern Ireland, particularly of the nationalist persuasion, yeah. see themselves as European as well. And Brexit diminishes their capacity to express themselves as European as well. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.